right. Hey, everybody. Today, we're super excited to have Jeff Beswick here. He has a phenomenal story about conversion and what Jesus has done in his life. So without further ado, Jeff, take it away. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate the opportunity. You know, your start doesn't have to be something that starts off really bad. I grew up in upstate New York, came from what would be a pretty normal family, good upbringing, a lot of family that was around, grandparents that were there, my mother and father, good people. And we moved a little bit. And right around the time I was about 12 years old, I was in our basement. I was a good kid, didn't cause problems, but I would just... I was down there, I was making a simple model, putting together a little tank. And I remember as I'm putting it together, I had the radio on and all of a sudden the music started getting really distorted. I started feeling very strange. And before I knew it, I was, I know now I was high as a young kid on uh, glue and in uh, what would later on be inhalants. And I remembered that my father had something in his shop that uh, smelled very similar to what the glue smelled like that I was playing around with. And so I ended up going over, grabbing some of that and intentionally for the first time at 12 years old, started huffing. And that experience, that first experience of getting high absolutely hooked me. And uh, what would be something that would be with my life for the next 12 years and cause a lot of problems in my life. When I finally came down, I realized that I could repeat this. I, and I wasn't a troubled kid. I wasn't a problem child. I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of baggage. And yet uh, this thing had opened a door and, you know, hell doesn't need a lot, but that was all it took to get me hooked on from that point forward in high school and junior high actually and high school, everything and anything that would get me high, whether it was pills, weed, became LSD and all of this before I was even halfway through high school. And I failed so much. The last time that I actually passed a grade or passed a full grade was when I was in sixth grade. Uh, they passed me on. Seventh grade passed me on. My parents fought it. Eighth grade passed me on into, into high school. I was drunk all through high school. I was high all through high school. And they gave me an option when I was in 11th grade uh, after I went MIA for about a month. They said, you either get your life together, which we don't think you can do, and you're still going to have to do five years of high school. Uh, we can kick you out or you can drop out and go in the military. So I left. I made a decision. I'll go into the military. I went to the military at 17. Who was giving you the ultimatum? Your parents? School. The it school. was the school. Wow. The school. Yeah. The high school said, you're a trouble. <laughs> you're a troubled child. And uh, they were tired of seeing me in the office. They were tired of all the problems. Were you hiding your drug use at this point? Nobody really knew about the huffing. They knew about my alcoholism. They knew about the drugs. But the huffing was something that it just, it was kind of underground. Nobody actually knew that. And it was still somewhat contained, but it was definitely an addiction that I had at that point. And it was not well known. Not a lot of people did it. Poor countries deal with it a lot. Mm -hmm. But in America, you don't have that as a major choice of drug. But even at that point, I walked away from, I'd had seasons. I just laid weed down, all other drugs. I couldn't stop doing the huffing. That just, 
it had a stronghold. And what was your parents' and, reaction to having a kid that was not troubled and then just taking a hard pivot? Uh, it was brutal. Very, very brutal. Caused them a lot of problems. Put their marriage on edge. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Like counselors didn't work. Nothing that they tried worked. I, something that's really strange. When I started doing drugs, I absolutely lost a conscience towards anything. I didn't, I had no conscience. You could tell me something's wrong. It's like, so what? That's how you feel about it. School, it didn't matter, which I think a lot of people deal with. But when I look back, it's nothing that anybody tried to teach or tell me registered it all on a conscious level. It was just their opinion versus how I felt. And so even when I went into the military, it got me kicked out of the military as well. I was uh, within a very short time uh, kicked out of, you know, kicked out of high school, well, drop out of high school, ultimatum. I was kicked out of the U.S. military. You know, I didn't even have a high school education. They told me I had to get one when I was in, uh, when I went into the military, never got one, still no high school education, sixth grade education. And Here's where I'm at at life and, you know, just barely out of my teens and I'm booted from the military on top of that. What branch of the military well, did you join? So I went into the U.S. Air Force and I did it. I did it as an opportunity to get away. I actually liked boot camp, the structure, the regulations, the, uh, the challenge of it. I excelled in the boot camp. And then when I found out that their rules meant nothing, as soon as boot camp was over, and they told me I didn't have to salute. I went off the rail again. It's like, okay, you guys are all fake too. And I just, I have full blown alcoholic at that point. I did. I worked on Titan two missiles. Doesn't that make you feel good? <laughs> so, uh, uh, I was working on missiles. I did. I scored really well on all the tests that they did for us, but my, uh, my military bearing was lacking, let's say. And so that just, I ended up with an, uh, six letters of reprimand, eight letters of counseling, which they can kick you out for like a two, two of those and one of the other. And so six letters of reprimand, eight letters of counseling. And then when I got the article 15, that was a discharge point. And so all of that leading up, looking back, it was absolutely the, the huffing really undermined everything still at that point. Were you continuing and your drug use during that time or did it taper off for a little bit? No, the only thing I, I decided to do stuff they couldn't test for. I didn't smoke mm -hmm. weed because they can test for it. I did things that don't show up in your normal tests. And inhalants happens to be one of them. Mm -hmm. right. So, but so to give you an idea, when I'm talking inhalants, by this point, I would go through several cans of spray paint a day, not just a little bit. And I found this out later on that within one year's time, a person that huffs, they do the damage that somebody that's a 30-year heroin user does within that time. So within one oh. year, you're doing 30 years damage. It's neurological. It's, it's, it's got all sorts of issues that it does. It messes you up mentally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's, it wasn't just, you know, I did a, I was, I was doing cans of this stuff a day. What'd you so, eat during that time? So my during my military time, I was I was not an entire month's salary was gone within the first week going out to the bars. And then the rest of the time it was uh, as long as I saved enough money for gas 
And then I would, uh, I'd have a little bit for beer and I'd have enough to have uh, mayonnaise and pickle sandwiches for the rest of the month and do it all over again, month after month. Uh, were you rooming with anyone? They didn't, you're dorm together, but it wasn't, uh, it was nobody that was helping to pay the bills. You're a military dorm. So uh, the other guy had his own issues, but we never really crossed paths too much. I have a question. So I, this is just in my head. When you were 12 and you essentially got high on accident, you're playing with a model yep. glue and it gets you high. You don't know what's happening. What was the thought from like, this is an accident to now I'm going to go find that. When did it click that that's. Yeah. A couple pastors have commented on that, that they've asked questions. It's, it was demonic inspiration. Okay. Like I remember being inspired like you get creative mm -hmm. ideas for music. It felt like that. It was, uh, it was inspiration. Like, Hey, I think there's something else just like this and to track it down, to find it and to an entirely different process and to figure out how to do that mm -hmm. at 12 years old. Right. It was not, it wasn't just normal. Uh, it wasn't just a normal figuring things out. I remember specifically being inspired. Wow. Yeah. Cause I think as a 12 year old, you're just, playing with your, your model and to feel high, you would almost probably be scared. Like what's happening? Why do I feel like this? So that's why it kind of, yeah, I didn't my... even, I didn't even realize entirely what it was. Right. It was more like the inspiration to do the inspiration to go huff was inspired. And it was, uh, it was a curiosity, which curiosity is normal in a 12 year old. But right. I remember the inspiration that was far more than just that. Did you ever try to bring a friend along or a sibling? Like, did you ever try to uh -huh. show anyone? Yeah, never really worked. It's kind of a, I'll call it this. It's like, I think one time I tried to, I tried to kind of bring other people in. It's sort of a solitary. I think that's part of the other thing. It's, it's very solitary mm -hmm. what I did. And it's not, it's not like a shared experience. And so one time and then never again after that. I think it's some of the other stuff you'd be like, okay, it makes sense. You were by yourself. <laughs> so uh, after I got kicked out of the military, one of the, one of the things is very much becoming, becoming isolated. Did you have any sense of wanting to remain in the military? Any sense of shame that you weren't able to finish or were you completely indifferent? Indifferent. When I said I had no conscience towards anything, it was just like, eh, you just roll with the, you roll with the changes. And so the military is going to kick you out and nothing registered. It's like, do you realize you have all of this? They've written you up. It's like, eh, you have an article 15 huh? and nothing, nothing connected. You know, when you think about some of the kids that we work with and they have uh, nothing registers for them con on a conscious level, that's absolutely where I was. Wow. Nothing at all registered, right, yeah. wrong. I didn't like hurting people and would not intentionally hurt someone. But the right and wrongs of life, no, that was didn't bother me. Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean by you didn't want to hurt people? So I wouldn't intentionally, I wasn't a cruel person. And so if something wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't do something intentional. I wouldn't lie to people. Imagine that, you know, it's like you're, you have integrity. <laughs> I wouldn't lie to people. Uh, you have a girl you're going to uh, take to, you know, on a date. You're not going to. I wouldn't do stuff that would would try to rip somebody off friends. I would never rip off. If I gave you my word, I would. 
that's part of an article 15 is I gave my word to somebody and wouldn't go back on it. They wanted more info and it all fell on me. It's like I gave my word, kind of like street code. Not that it makes sense, but it was- uh, It's your code of ethics. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't burn people. I wouldn't hurt people. And I wouldn't intentionally, intentionally, I wouldn't do it. I hurt a lot of people, family, et cetera, but wouldn't intentionally do it. When you got out of the military, did did you go back to your parents' house? Did you have a place to land? So I went back and I became, I lived in the basement. That was, uh, they they obviously, my room became a, a guest room when I moved out and I just began to live in the basement. And very quickly, I ended up getting kicked out. I had nowheres to go, no home, no place, no friends by that point. Uh, uh, just my lifestyle did not line up with what other people would want around. And by this time it was, uh, I didn't care if I drank, didn't care if I did drugs, it was all huffing. And again, cans upon cans of of spray paint every day. And the only thing my home was for before my parents kicked me out, it was just a place to crash so I could do it all over again. How did you fund your habit? How would you get the spray paint or whatever you're huffing? I would (laughs) steal it from the stores. It's, you can go in, I'm not gonna tell you how I did it. If somebody, is listening that is uh, whatever foolish, but I would be able to steal it from the store again and again and again and never, uh, never get caught. And so hardware stores, paint stores, and that was my supply. And then if you need food, after a short time, I ended up homeless. I was on the streets, I was living in the woods, I was living in graveyards, out of my mind, getting picked up by the police all the time. I had a total of five drug rehabs. I'd get arrested on mental hygiene laws. Sometimes they take me to the hospital if they found me. Uh, if I happen to be on the street for some reason, going to the store, I was thrown in jail for violation of probation. So the, you know, bum missions, the place where they let people that are homeless go, they kicked me out. Entry to care, which is for drug addicts, would not let me in. The town of Gates, which uh, we had a pastor that was laboring there for a little while, but that's uh, near Rochester, New York. The town of Gates, I was court or I wasn't allowed there. So if the police saw me there, that's where I was most of the time. Uh, they would pick me up and drive me somewhere else. So I'm, How did you get kicked yeah, out of a whole city? The judge was tired of seeing me. He was tired of hearing my name in, in Greece. They had The cops didn't know who I was, but they knew somebody was living in the woods That was when Rambo was a little bigger. And so that ended up being the nickname. And when I got locked up in jail, I'm talking to one of the police officers and he's like, you're the guy. And that's how I found out that they had a nickname for me. He was a a friend from high school. And uh, yeah, they they knew I was there, but didn't know how to get rid of me. Was there ever a moment where you're like, man, I'm I'm living in a graveyard? No, no. Wow. Nothing. You know, I'll throw in this in the midst of this kind of a gap in between jail and, and the graveyard, there was also getting thrown into a psych center. Mm-hmm. And so even then nothing registered. So no conscience, no feelings towards it. And the psych center, so I had been in the graveyards, I'd been in the woods. When I got thrown in the psych center, I was gone. I, I remember not being able to tell the difference. I had done a lot of inhalants. And I knew I did a lot of damage one time, but my father's wife ended up, she was driving to work and found me crawling along the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. 
and I had done inhalants and it just did some damage. I don't know if it was a nervous breakdown or what it was, but I was not the same. I couldn't tell the difference between hallucination, reality, imagination, what was real. I'm drooling. And she took me to the hospital and and there was a big incident that occurred there. I got violent, booted a nurse across the room, a whole bunch of stuff. I was blacked out the whole time. I don't remember it. I do remember briefly coming out of it and my arms hanging or one arm hanging around a guy in a white jacket. As I look to the right, I look to the left and I can see my feet dragging and my arms around another guy and they're dragging me into the psych center. And I don't remember anything for about two weeks. I just recently got the records from that. There's about a hundred pages of records from when I was there. Uh, from what I understand, there's about 800 pages total, but they're describing all the stuff I was doing, trying to beat a nurse with a dresser, tried to throw a nurse out the window. I'm just reading what the records say. It's like uh, Pastor Morales and myself were reading through. He was with me when I got them and we're reading through. He's like, oh, this is interesting. Beat a nurse with a dresser. Nice, nice. Didn't play well with others. You know? <laughs> but uh, I don't remember a lot of that. What's interesting. So here is the first time. I remember how crazy I was. I was tormented. Everything was very, 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 very dark. That's the only way to describe it. As far as emotionally, I was living in uh, just hallucination, but it was it was horrible. It was tormented. They had me on prolixin, thorazine, aldol. My uncle was a Christian at the time, and he came to visit me. And I remember several things he said. One of them, he said, sitting next to you is like sitting next to Charles Manson. That's how he felt. And then he asked me afterwards, he said, do you want to pray? I no longer had the ability to speak. I could repeat what somebody said, but I couldn't speak on my own. So I repeated, I want to pray. I said those words. He led me in a prayer of salvation. And you can look in my records within 30 days of that prayer, all the records change. And I was released. It says, uh, is playing well, is uh, interacting with others no longer violent towards staff, like all the records change from the day. And it records the visitor that came to see me. But my uncle never told me I needed to go to church. He didn't let me know. He didn't let me know all the things that I needed. I don't think he even knew. He wasn't part of uh, like what we have the privilege of being a part of. And so I was released from there after it was month, over three months, maybe four months more. I'm not really sure. And then I was uh, went back to, to Rochester, New York, and they put me in uh, the Rochester Psych Center, which is it's not much better. But uh, that was from that point, I got released. And that's where really full time homelessness, graveyards, woods and a very tormented time of my life. When it, you're saying tormented, it makes me think that you're starting to have what was the torment? Towards the end, it was demonic, but it was, when I say tormented, like you can't figure your life out. I st it still wasn't registering. Uh, when I first got out of there, it wasn't registering that I had a problem. The thing that was really interesting, I'll tell you what gave me a conscience, didn't save me. But when I went to, some friends took me to AA and I, it didn't change my life. But when I sat there, I can't tell you why. Somebody spoke one night. I don't know if they're talking about God, talking about problems, can't tell you. But for the first time, I actually started feeling bad about what I was doing. Hmm. And I got upset. I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> this is horrible. Now I can't do what I was doing. Now I'm bothered by it. I was bothered. 
that it was hurting me. I was bothered by what I was doing. I couldn't do it without a conscience anymore. It was like something happened. Behind the scenes, my uncle is praying for me. Uh, my parents had friends that got saved, an older couple. They're praying for me, which I found out afterwards when they said, Jeff, we were praying for you when we were when you were in the psych center, in the hospitals, in the jails. And they're praying for my salvation. And so when I look back, I can see all these individual pieces coming together and bringing about uh, bringing about a change. But having a conscience then made me suicidal. And so I'm tormented because I can't I can't function in life. And tormented is it had nothing intent, nothing that you can pin it on. It was just I was just I hated life at about this point. I didn't want to do drugs anymore. I didn't want to be an, uh, an alcoholic. I didn't want to be an addict. I didn't want to be doing what I was doing and I couldn't stop. So that was uh, that was about 1987. So that had been about 85, 86, somewhere right around those two years. I got saved in 1987. And I couldn't stop. And so nobody's able to help. The counselors can't help. The drug uh, rehabs can't help. And in 1987 was when uh, I happened to be released from the psych center for a time. I was at a halfway house that they were trying to rehabilitate my life. And it was that at that point that I actually heard the first gospel witness. Uh, they were doing a street meeting downtown Rochester, New York. Uh, one of the guys confronted me and the thing that was a trip, he asked me, he said, Hey, uh, you ever hear about Jesus? And I was like, Oh yeah, man, I'm born again. And the guy said, really, where do you go to church? Started asking questions. The thing that was funny, I never heard those words born again. I never, I didn't even know what it meant. And yet that's what I told the guy uh, who was witnessing to me. But when he began to ask questions, where do you go to church? Where would you go if you died? I'm like, heaven like it was he knew i didn't have the goods he invited me out to a church service and i thought he was trying to hit on me you know it's like what what is it i'm like dude i'm not into that i thought he was trying to hit on me but <laughs> i told him where i was at i was like okay here's here's where our place is i didn't figure out i'd ever see him again and then at the place i was staying for that one brief moment uh, uh, we get a knock on the door. Somebody says, Hey, a guy's here to pick you up. And I was, I remember I was making a sandwich and I remember thinking, it's like, well, if this guy's bold enough to, to show up, I'll go with him." And the other thing, when he witnessed to me, I didn't understand anything he was talking about. And he was, but he just had something. I'm like, man, I don't know what you have, but I want it. I remember speaking those words in my head. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so the guy shows up, brings me out to church. I didn't like the pastor as pastor Jeff day. I didn't like the people, but there was something definite tangible that they had in a guy that was in the church that day. I know I'm a mess. I know I'm a wreck. And this guy invited me to go to uh, invited to take me out with him and his wife to go out to eat with them. And it was their anniversary. And they took me to some high class Italian restaurant. And I was like, I'm like, you guys have mental problems <laughs> because you're inviting me to go with you. I'm like, something's wrong with you people. <laughs> but uh, that was that was actually the start. That was 1987. Pastor Day made a comment when he prayed with me. 8787 was when I prayed with Pastor Day. That was the official. Uh, I had been coming for a little while. That's the official day, though. 
And he said, in the next six months, you're going to look back. You're not going to believe what you came from. And so from that point, I was set free from the drug addiction I'd had for 12 years. I was out of the psych center. I was in a men's home. I actually, within three or four months, I actually had my own place and was living on my own. That's, That's what began to happen. Yeah. So God began yeah. to do a work and I was excited about what he was doing. I was going on outreach. I was street on street meetings. I would be at picnics. I was, I was showing up at church. It was a genuine touch of God. Uh, most of the people at the particular point didn't know the problems I had. They showed up a little bit later. It didn't take long. Uh, I remember coming out to church, covered mud all over my jeans I am, uh, when I was in the woods, I remember one time, this is, and these might be staggered as far as their order, but I remember feeling just wicked, unclean, incredible, like, man, I just, you live in the woods, you're, you, you're not, you know, you don't have good hygiene there, but just, it was, it was something deeper than that, that was touching my heart. And I was like, man, if I could just cut my hair and I looked down at that moment, and right in the middle of the path, in the middle of the woods, there's a shiny pair of scissors laying there. And so I figure I'm going to give myself a haircut and I start trimming up my hair. And it's like, I'm going to get like a beautiful, nice crew cut, get rid of all this long hair. Well, it didn't look that good, I guess. I didn't have a mirror and I went right to church afterwards. When I walked in, eyes are big, mouths are dropped. I'm covered in mud. And I got strands, I got clumps, I got bald spots. Uh, and uh, so people began to realize, like, this guy has a lot more issues than what we thought. When I first got saved, I stood up in the middle of Pastor Day preaching. He didn't know if I was going to run the pulpit uh, and tackle him and stab him. Uh, ushers would come over, Jeff, you got to sit down. I punched the ceiling tiles out of the church hallway one time because he, he ticked me off with his preaching. I always talked to my pastor. Even back then, I would go to him all the, ever since. I always talked to him. I'd ask him questions. Why do I feel bad about this? I was actually scared because I'm like, why do I want to come to your church? And why don't I want to do drugs? That freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, uh, that was early on. I ended up getting admitted back to the psych center shortly after going there. Uh, going out to the uh, go, going out to the Potter's house, they were at the Sheridan Inn at the time uh, hotel, and they admitted me back into the into the psych center. They start giving me they start giving me psychotropic drugs. Uh, Pastor Day came to visit me. I remember that. I remember trying to argue spiritual truths with him, nice. and he wouldn't argue with me, which was funny. Something inside of me, I wanted to argue with him. And he's like, "Well, you can believe what you want." And because of that, I was like, okay, forget it. All the things I wanted to argue, I threw out and just kept coming to coming to church. Pastor Van Epps at the time uh, was a disciple. He and his wife started picking me up to bring me every Sunday service. Uh, I remember Claire telling me, you know what, Jeff, someday God's going to give you a wife. I go, another crazy person. I can't talk. I still drool at times. When we'd go out to service, we still used to hold hands. It'd be everybody, let's join hands, let's give God praise. Because of the drugs, my hands shook violently. I'd shake watches off. I'd shake, you know, I'd shake your jewelry loose. It's like, and I, at that time, I'd also crush your hands. It's like unintentionally, but I shake hands, holding hands. And they would bring me out. 
Pastor Day told the congregation, said that God told him that man doesn't belong there. And he declared that across the pulpit. And so they, I'm still a crazy psycho as far as they know, but God told him that he preached it. And so a couple of the brothers got bold and said, we're going to try to get him out of there and get him into the men's home with us. And what the psych center told them was Mr. Beswick is a revolving door case. He'll never be out of this place. And they sat in a big meeting room, all the doctors, all the psychologists and uh, what they said was, you know, no hope. And they said, well, we believe that God can do a miracle in his life. And so uh, ended up being able to get out of the place, move in with a bunch of the guys. And I began to have God just deal with me on things. You know, we take for granted that a lot of times we help people or the preaching. Pastor Day never preached on a lot of things. And God began convicting me. I went to him. And I remember asking him, I had the only thing I had left in my life at the time was a girlfriend. And I said, Pastor Day, why am I feeling bad about being with this girl? And he's he laughed and he took me to the word of God and showed me in scripture. I'm like that. You mean living that way is wrong? It's like done. She was cut off before I was even through with the conversation. Like, I'm not doing that. Later, she got saved because she said, there's no way you change. God just helping me immensely to see things that I know it was people's prayers. The people told me that God would set me free from a drug addiction. So picture this all up until this time, can after can after can every single day of inhalants, other than when I was locked up, I couldn't do it. But the day I got released from jail, I was locked up for a year, DWI. They, uh, uh, and the day I got out, I was high doing inhalants and on the streets again. And I had everything planned. There was programs planned, trainings planned, jobs planned, all in place. And I could not stay away from the stuff. I couldn't live free. And the people told me, it's like, Jeff, all you got to do is ask. He's going to set you free. It's like, okay, I'll do it. And within less than a month from when they told me that, I remember the day I was still in a psych center. I, they would release me to go to church. But I remember laying there in bed. Monday or Tuesday morning. And before I could even open my eyes to look up, it was gone. What had driven my life for years. And when it kicked on, didn't matter if I had a job, didn't matter if I had money, didn't matter if everything was perfect. I just, I could not, not respond to it. I was definitely enslaved. I remember opening my eyes and then thinking, it's like, okay, what the heck do you Christians do now? I haven't known how to live without this. And it's like, I'm picturing the men's home and I'm like, there's no TV there. There's no nothing there. It's like, what the heck am I going to do? <laughs> and that was the first time I had been free since I was 12 years old. And how old were and you at this, this time? That was 1987. So I was 24. Totally free, totally released. And then I asked him, I said, well, God sent me free from cigarettes too. They said, yeah, ask him to take the taste away. And so I remember that was on like a Thursday, no, a Monday. And I went to smoke a cigarette. I was, this was like a week later on a Monday, I go to smoke a cigarette. It tasted like I licked an ashtray. And then uh, I was like, okay, this is, I got set free from this. He took the taste away from that. And never again since uh, 1987, everything was gone. The alcohol was gone. Addiction was gone. And an absolute freedom, you know, who the sun sets free. That, that verse just became like an anthem. Yes. I'd never had anything be able to do it. No rehabs, no jail, no counselors, 
the people that would go searching for me in the woods that would try to help me. I've had pastors go into the woods that tried to find me and help me. And it wasn't until uh, getting saved and hearing Holy Ghost preaching on the last rehab that I was in near New York City. My father had paid $10,000 cash, took it out of his savings, paid $10,000 cash. They showed up at the uh, they showed up at the rehab. They're trying to talk with my parents, have me in the same room. First time I remember seeing my dad even weep. This is, you know, my 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 mom and the dad who adopted me and he's weeping. And then there's the graduation and I'm released. We all go to Syracuse, New York. And there's pictures of me from that time. And my, my mother said she looked across at me. It's like he is not done. And just the look, the attitude, the demeanor, it's like I I sat through it. I could sit through counseling. I could sit through drug rehabs. I could do it all. I could recite it. I could rehearse it. But it never set me free. It never, it never broke the drive. It never broke the addiction. And so I could have done a thousand more. It never would have changed anything. Wow. And I was a good student when I was there. I'd help people. Uh, I'd encourage people you can get free. <laughs> but no, there was no deliverance. Rehabs didn't. My wife was, uh, you know, she was mentioning something about being homeless. So there's, when I was homeless, there was, you know, if you're down South, that's fine. It's warmer down there, you know, be on the beaches. Upstate New York is not a good place to be homeless when the bum mission kicks you out. Yeah. And so I remember times falling asleep on concrete slabs and it's sucking all the heat out of me and, and, unbelievably cold, uh, freezing, being rained on night after night after night, slush, you have nowhere to go. You, there's Nobody's welcoming you. Open doorways aren't welcome. I remember I would go to places where there was new construction and the houses were just going up. And I would find a place that, you know, in one of the homes and just go to some corner and pass out soaked, freezing, rained on, snowed on. The uh, for food, it would be going into the back of a truck that was unloading at a grocery store. It'd be walking into a store and so not like I just grab anything and walk out with it. Didn't matter what it was and not really try to hide it. Just carry it, walk out. I remember pulling, walking down the street one time, uh, absolutely starving, hadn't eaten for days. And some house must have just had a party and there was a rind of watermelon that was sitting on the top, trash cans open, grabbing that, eating that. And that was that was that particular time. Uh, the guy whose house that was showed up. He was a Christian. And I remember this car pulling up alongside of me and police cars were always pulling up. And so I didn't really pay attention to him. I'm like, here we go again, getting busted, going to get locked up. And the man called me and I look over and he offered me this full plate of watermelon. Let me get into his car, asked me if I could go anywhere, gave me something that was like a flyer from their church, gave me money so that I could buy food, dropped me off at the store, asked if I needed anything else. It really tried to be is the first interaction. It stands out today as somebody that really was able to intervene, but uh, still not saved at that point. So it didn't do a whole lot. I remember, I remember going out one time and this is what led to my 
one of the times when I was get when I got thrown in jail was I was court ordered to a drug rehab. Gates, New York, court ordered me. Judge was tired of me. He's like, you're gone. Court ordered me to a drug rehab. It was in Ithaca, New York. And I bolted in the middle of the night and they were in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even know where to go, where I was. It was cornfields every direction. And I just began walking and walking miles and miles. And a guy picked me up and brought me to the store. Drug of choice. I can get my drug in the middle of the night at a grocery store. So that's what I did. But that night I knew I did some serious damage when I got when I got high that night, something broke and I knew it and I couldn't tell what it was. But I'm like, something's not right. And I remember going, I finally got to Syracuse, New York, uh, walked, hitched everything to get there. When I went when I got there, I went to uh, a friend's house. And when the girl answered the door, the first words out of her mouth was, oh, my God, Jeff, what did you do to yourself? I couldn't speak. I couldn't communicate. I couldn't put thoughts together. You still, you know, the sad thing about that, even when I was in the psych center, the closest way that I can describe it, it's like you have the most powerful computer. You have an Apple computer and somebody just rips all the keys off the keyboard. Everything is still there. All your feelings are there. All your wants, all your desires, all of your hopes uh, you have no way to communicate it, no way to let somebody know what you're feeling, no way to to communicate back. And it, it that is tormenting. I'm curious about your mind. Was there a process to God restoring your mind or your ability to think and comprehend? The, uh, the doctors, when I got put in the psych center the first time before my uncle prayed with me, they were professionals that had been on TV and uh, they were well-known, some of them. And they said, we've never known of somebody where your son is ever recovering. Wow. And, uh, and they're like, this is, you're going to be throwing away the key. My family actually planned my funeral sometime around this because they had just seen all the torment. Uh, they had everything I was going through, everything I put them through. If something took place in Greece, New York, uh, where I, where they lived, where I, one of the areas I'd be, if somebody showed up with a gun, if there was problems in the neighborhood, they would always call my house. Where's your son? Constantly. And they said it was either you were in trouble or they were locking you up or you were dead. Was it what we were waiting for? And they got called all the time. And so that was, you know, that was one of the tormenting things. And the doctors told them never going to recover. So when I prayed with my uncle, I got a lot of the faculties back, but then I continued to use and lost uh, lost many of them. I never went back to where I was. Amazingly, I never got that crazy again, but they admitted me to the Rochester psych center on what is called axis one, which is like, you're, you're crazy, you're psycho, you're out of your mind. And it was always, it was always drug related at that point. Fast forward to getting saved in 1987. People remember me when I first started coming out they still remember because of the drugs, the shakes, they remember me drooling. You know, They remember me not communicating very well, but being in all the interactions is like, it, it was really more imperceptible. Like, I don't ever remember a time where suddenly it's like, Oh my gosh, I can talk to people. Would you look at that? Mm -hmm. It just, you're just always a part of relationships talking I remember probably the first two years not fitting in with people, uh, not being able to, to really 
uh, fit into conversations. I, I could sit on the outside, but you know, it's like a little kid trying to jump when everybody's jumping rope. That's what it felt like to come into a, a conversation. It's like that. Uh, it just didn't work. And it was after about two years that things started really, uh, really shifting, changing relationships, friendships, uh, noticeably. How about sleep? What was sleep like when you were in the middle of your addiction? And then did you notice a shift when you got saved? So it would be passing out from exhaustion. You know, it's like uh, it's freezing out, homeless, there's nowhere to sleep, but you just can't walk anymore. You can't stay awake anymore. It's been hours or days. And and I would go into the graveyards because nobody would go in there. And you sleep where there's, you know, where there's no snow, where it's dry. And so that wasn't always where people would want to sleep. How did you not freeze to death? That's insane. I had good jack. I'm curious about your opinions of rehab. The failure rate of rehabs is off the charts. Sometimes it feels like it can provide like an accountability. That's really, did you need any of that? It didn't work for me. Uh, Accountability didn't work. It's like, I was not somebody that you were going to, that was going to be a dry drunk. Uh, And inhalants had an entirely different drive to them. So it's the time. So one of the rehabs I was in uh, was part of the court order along the way. I actually got admitted to uh, was teen challenge. I didn't know it was Christian at the time. And so I go to, I go to teen challenge and they're doing all this Bible stuff. And I'm like, it made no sense to me. None of it. Uh, Good people. And so I demanded they let me out 11 o'clock at night or I'm going to kick the door down. It's like, you guys are let, we're not letting you out. They finally let me out. I look back, that had potential uh, because there was pieces of it that connected more than just uh, follow a bunch of rules. There was something more to it. I just didn't have the patience for it. Like, look, I'm I'm not into this, not interested but I could look back and see that there was pieces to that that would work. But then you have people like myself not interested in it. But it was the closest to all the ones that, that helped. Here's an interesting thing. Don't know if this fits in at all. There was one time we went to a church that was on Elm Street, actually right across from the psych center that I was in, RPC Psych Center. And uh, the, uh, they're preaching. And at the end, they say, if anybody needs help, want you to come forward. And so I go forward. It's, it, I'm like, I need help. Absolutely. I, I recognize that. And so somebody put their hand on me. And what's really interesting was that I began to speak in tongues. I never heard tongues before. They didn't say we're praying for people to get filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, they didn't tell me what was going to happen. But I felt this peace flood me that I've never felt before. And this And I just remember some man that put his hand on me and all of a sudden, I'm speaking something. I don't know what it is. I feel a peace. And so uh, just an interesting process that God was doing along the way. How many years was that before you got saved? That was about a year before I got saved. That was a year after praying with my uncle and a year before getting saved. Wow. That's That's crazy. crazy. So you got to tell me what, do you have a relationship with your parents today? My biological father and my mother, he was a biker. She was a young girl. She got pregnant early on. They're both young. They got divorced. So my dad and his current wife, I have a very good relationship. They're in Sierra Vista. 
I've prayed with him for salvation. I've, uh, I've prayed with his wife. They've gone to church. My mother remarried, really great guy. Uh, and before he passed, I prayed with him for salvation. Uh, we had a good relationship even when he wasn't saved. And my mom, they just didn't like to hear about Jesus. But I prayed with him before he passed. My mother, just since COVID, started watching the preaching online when I preach. And so just saw her this past weekend. She's like, you know, I'm very proud of you. You're a very good speaker. You know, that's what she says. What a miracle. (laughs) What was their reaction when you got saved? Not into it. Not into it. (laughs) You're kidding me. No, it was just one more thing. They were traumatized. Okay, sure. It's just one more thing of you being a psycho. But they've watched over the years. So it was 20 years. In my 20th year of salvation, my biological dad and uh, and the dad who raised me both prayed for salvation. We've prayed with a lot of family members, but they were not into it at first. And even at that point, I asked my dad, probably two years before he prayed to get saved, maybe three, I said, do you guys ever talk about what God did in my life? And they said, yes, but not like that. (laughs) In other (laughs) words, we know there's a change in your life, but we don't credit God for that. So. Unbelievable. That's so great. I, I mean, I can, I do empathize with that, that. You'd be, you know, especially at first, like, okay, yep, we'll see. How many rehabs have you gone to? How many things have you tried? But yeah. then you 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 marry Nancy. What did they think of that? They're attending <laughs> their son's wedding. They they love my wife. They love my wife. Absolutely love her. I met Nancy. So, you know, one of the things about everything that has happened in my life has played out in the will of God, which... You guys understand that. But, you know, when I talk to people, some people want the little pieces, the blessings of life, mm-hmm. but it's in the will of God. I met my wife being a, a drill instructor at a boot camp. I was serving God and she was uh, she was she was a cute little counselor, but I was there to do business. So I ignored her. I saw her. She caught my eye. And I'm like, whoa, I got work to do. And uh, here's here's something interesting. Pastor Bennett was actually responsible for pushing this forward. He's the one who wanted, uh, he said, you guys need, you need to talk to that girl. And I think Kathy had something to do with it as well, but they were the ones that were very much behind it and actually asked me, what do you think about Nancy? And so uh, thank you, Pastor Bennett. Thank you, Kathy. So on the last day of boot camp, everything's done. It's all over. The kids had a great week. And then I asked Pastor Campo, I said, do you mind if uh, if when Nancy was going to be coming up into the area, she was living on Cape at the time. I said, do you mind if when she comes into the area, if we go out on a date? So I asked her pastor, then I talked to her and that's the beginning of a beautiful other story. And so what was your haircut like then? That's awesome. What do they say? Hi and she was- Yeah, there you go. <laughs> She was definitely a woman of faith because when she pursued it, uh, the only thing she knew about me was that it's like this man likes ketchup because she saw me put ketchup on everything at the uh, at, at, at the boot camp. And then I lived in the woods and she didn't know much else other than she had a friend that was in the church that said, no, he's a man of God. And so she took a step of faith. Wow, that's amazing. So stinky cool. That's really cool. And today you guys are pastoring 
So today we are pastoring in Chicopee, Massachusetts. We've been here for 11 years, and my uh, my oldest son, who got married recently, uh, married Sarah uh, Hallis from the Lowell congregation, and so he's in the church. He's uh, leading ministry for our young people. And my youngest boy, Evan, he's also in church, my wife and I, and we're we're loving the will of God right now. My daughter is in, uh, she's serving God, married, grandkids. She's in uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina under Pastor Zespanski. When you got saved, were you on a bunch of medication from the yes, psych ward? Yes, yeah. And so here's what happened. They didn't want to take me off the meds. And I knew that I knew I didn't want to be on them anymore. I was on Prolixin, Haldol, Thorazine, all those different things that they give you. I didn't want to be on them anymore. And so when they gave them to me, I'd put them under my tongue, open my mouth, show them I swallowed it and go spit it out and totally got clarity back because they mess you up. And they give you one so that you have you have to take another one because of the side effects of the first. And I just insisted that my doses be less than what what I was taking. That's how I got off the official and unofficial. <laughs> <laughs> This, this is really important. This gets into something. There was incidences that took place. I got beat up by two police officers one night when I went out to pray. Happened the same time as Rodney King. Needed surgery afterwards. Pastor Day gets a phone call one in the morning. He's like, my gosh, Pastor, what did you do? He had to appear at court to be a character witness. And he made a comment that has stuck with me ever since. The lawyer asked him, what can you tell me about Mr. Beswick? And he said that he's brutally honest. That is something that stayed with me. I never had the words for it. It's just if something needs to be dealt, if, if I have to make a response to be brutally honest, and that has carried me over the years. Like if something's wrong, it's like, okay, I can do what I want, but it's going to blow up or it's going to, I'm going to do what God wants. Concerning that one thing, that's been an integral part. It's like God will set you free. God will change your life. God can move in anybody's life, but people have a responsibility to respond. And I watch people not get better. And if I can boil it down, it's like they just won't be honest. They won't deal in truth. They won't deal in facts. It's like they're going to believe what they want to believe. If it's emotions, if they're going to hold to their own opinions, that's, that is something that I just didn't do. One other thing that kept me going, it was Pastor Payne. He made the he made the comment and it's helped me for years. And it was if you don't quit, you won't lose. And that has stayed with me since probably two to four years into salvation. And I've given that to people. And so that's a that's another thing I hold on to. Close to home, hey? That sounds familiar. Do you know that guy? <laughs> I know that guy. I really appreciate you coming on. Praise God. It's been uh, it's been wonderful being able to spend a little time here talking and appreciate the ministry that you guys afford to document uh, awesome. testimonies. And hopefully, hopefully this ends up being a blessing for some people.